You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to the 72nd episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, as part of the background for Robert E. Lee's Cheat Mountain campaign, we mentioned that in late July 1861, Major General George McClellan left Western Virginia and made his way to Washington, D.C., where he was given command of the disorganized and demoralized Federal Army that had just been given a good kicking by the Confederates at the First Battle of Manassas. Since we already spent some time back in episode number 44 talking about McClellan's life story, we won't cover that same ground again here. But we will remind you that as far as McClellan's small-scale victories out in western Virginia, which were the reason he was called up to the big leagues in July 1861, Well, let's just say that in the North, the perception of those victories had less to do with reality than with McClellan's willingness to toot his own horn. Although he did orchestrate the movements that led to the Confederate debacle at the Philippi races, he wasn't actually present on the field. And then at Rich Mountain, where he was present, he lost his nerve and failed to support Rosecrans. Nevertheless, McClellan, In letters to his influential friends and in newspaper accounts, McClellan made certain that he received the credit for the successes that federal arms had achieved in western Virginia. He thus became the North's first battlefield hero. With that kind of self-promotion added to the reputation for success that he'd carried into the war, it really came as no surprise when, on July 22nd, the day after the main Union field army had been humiliated along the banks of Bull Run, George Britton McClellan was handed an urgent message. It was from the president, and it read, Circumstances make your presence here necessary. Come hither without delay. After receiving that summons to come to Washington, McClellan wasted no time in responding. He turned over command in western Virginia to William Rosecrans and then traveled by special train to the nation's capital. When he arrived in Washington on Friday, July 26th, an enthusiastic crowd greeted him at the railroad station. The newspapers were already hailing him as the young Napoleon, and in the aftermath of the embarrassing defeat at Manassas, The northern public expected great things from the handsome, confident general who had already delivered victories out in western Virginia. The next morning, McClellan went to the White House and met with the president. At that meeting, Abraham Lincoln described McClellan's new command. He was to command what was then the departments of Washington and northeastern Virginia, which basically was made up of the main federal field army 
and also the defenses of Washington. The rest of that Saturday was spent in a whirl of meetings and inspections, and everywhere he turned, George McClellan found himself hailed as the remedy for the Union's military woes. And indeed, from the very beginning, McClellan himself felt that he'd been called upon to save the nation, an enormous responsibility that he found very flattering and very satisfying. At the end of that day, a day in which he'd been overwhelmed by adulation, he sat down to write to his wife, Ellen, saying, quote, I find myself in a new and strange, strange position here, President, Cabinet, General Scott, and all deferring to me. By some strange operation of magic, I seem to become the power of the land. I almost think that were I to win some small success now, I could become dictator or anything else that might please me. But nothing of that kind would please me. Therefore, I won't be dictator. Admirable self-denial. End quote. Now, Stephen Sears, in his biography of McClellan, points out that George McClellan, as a student of Roman history, referred to dictatorship not in its modern negative sense, but in its original meaning as a temporary expedient in a time of great crisis, when a Roman man would be given great powers in order to save the Republic, and then after the crisis had passed, he would relinquish those powers. But nevertheless, even with that understanding, McClellan's thoughts upon coming to Washington are breathtaking in their conceit and vanity. I mean, one can hardly imagine Robert E. Lee or Ulysses S. Grant penning such vainglorious thoughts, even in a private letter to his wife. Three days later, after visiting Congress and receiving more praise, McClellan wrote again to Ellen, saying, quote, I began to feel how great the task committed to me. Oh, how sincerely I pray to God that I may be endowed with the wisdom and courage necessary to accomplish the work. Who would have thought when we were married that I should so soon be called upon to save my country? I learned that before I came on, they said in Richmond that there was only one man they feared, and that was McClellan. End quote. Wow. So, really, there's no denying that George McClellan brought a massive ego with him to Washington. And then after arriving in the nation's capital, his new assignment went immediately to his head, further enhancing his opinion of himself. And as we'll see, this weakness in McClellan's character, this great egotism, will manifest itself in troubling ways in the months ahead. And in the end, it'll prove to be the cause of the young Napoleon's downfall. The telegram he'd received in Western Virginia had read, Circumstances make your presence here necessary. Come hither without delay. And when he arrived in Washington on July 26th and rode down Pennsylvania Avenue in a carriage, George McClellan could see many signs of the circumstances that required his presence. Five days had passed since the Union soldiers trounced at Manassas had started to trudge into Washington, and in spite of the best efforts of the authorities to restore order, the army and the capital were still in disarray. McClellan could see drunken soldiers roaming the streets. He found that demoralized officers filled the saloons at fashionable hotels, 
And then, of course, there was the enemy. The Confederates, who had bested the Federals in the war's first big battle, were now encamped at Centerville, Virginia, scarcely 25 miles southwest of the capital. The day after his arrival in Washington, McClellan made a quick tour of the Union Army camps on the outskirts of the capital. On the opposite shore of the Potomac, the Federals still controlled the narrow strip of Virginia running north from Alexandria to a point just above Georgetown. But if the enemy launched an all-out assault on Washington, McClellan had no confidence in the ability of his new command to put up a good fight. Though on paper, the army consisted of 51,000 men, only about two-thirds of them were available for duty in the immediate aftermath of the defeat at Manassas. And of those present for duty, their new general found his dismay that for the most part they were ill-led and ill-trained. McClellan would later say that, quote, I found no army to command, end quote. Instead, he found that he had, quote, a mere collection of regiments cowering on the banks of the Potomac, some perfectly raw, others dispirited by the recent defeat. The city was almost in a condition to have been taken by a dash of a regiment of cavalry, end quote. Well, the capital was, in fact, vulnerable, but not actually in any real danger. At that point in time, the Confederates lacked the means to launch and sustain the sort of offensive that would have been needed to capture Washington. No one in the North realized that, though, and so in the days immediately after the stunning rebel victory at Manassas, pessimism and anxiety were the prevailing sentiments in the nation's capital. Such critical times seemed to call for a hero, and when he arrived in Washington, George McClellan seemed to fit the role perfectly. He cut a dashing figure as he rode about on his magnificent dark bay, Dan Webster, and he radiated what one observer called, quote, an indescribable air of success, end quote. To McClellan's mind, the country was calling upon him to save it, and with great energy, he immediately set about trying to do so. His first order of business was to instill order and discipline into the Union forces in and around Washington and turn the disorganized rabble he'd inherited into serious soldiers. The first task McClellan took on was restoring a sense of order to Washington itself. The city was overrun with soldiers. There were three months' men, their enlistments up, setting out for home, There were stragglers still wandering about after the battle, not yet feeling any pressing need to return to their units, and there were great numbers of demoralized officers spending more time in the city's bar rooms and hotel lobbies than in their encampments. And so to clean up this embarrassing scene, McClellan made Andrew Porter provo-marshal. Porter, who had commanded a brigade at Manassas, was given a force of tough, hard-bitten regulars to act as military police. Porter's men swarmed through the city streets, and in short order, they'd cleared the capital's hotels, brothels, saloons, and gambling houses of strays, stragglers, and slackers, and sent them off to the outlying army camps. No soldier, whether enlisted man or officer, was allowed in the city without a pass. Just three days after Porter had started his work, McClellan could boast that Washington was, quote, perfectly quiet, end quote. And on August 1st, an editorial in the New York Tribune congratulated McClellan on, quote, the admirable system of discipline he has put in force, end quote. 
But clearing the capital was only one aspect of imposing discipline on the unruly volunteers. McClellan was forced to teach a lesson in implacable military justice when some three-year regiments grew restless watching other volunteers, three-months men, muster out and go home. Two of the unhappy regiments resorted to mutiny to bring attention to their grievances. When the men of the 2nd Maine refused to turn out one morning, McClellan dispatched the Provo Guard to arrest the ringleaders, and ultimately 63 of the disgruntled soldiers were sentenced to a grim imprisonment at Fort Jefferson in the Dry Tortugas off the southern tip of Florida. But the most serious test of McClellan's new standards of discipline came from the 79th New York, the regiment nicknamed the Highlanders because of the large number of Scotsmen in its ranks, had suffered heavy casualties at First Manassas, including losing its colonel, James Cameron, the brother of the Secretary of War. The regimental historian wrote that after the battle, quote, I want to go home was pictured on every countenance, end quote. Then a misunderstanding arose. The soldiers of the 79th had somehow come to believe that they'd been promised they could return to New York City for the purpose of recruiting new volunteers to replace the large number of casualties they'd suffered at Manassas. But then when the Highlanders learned they wouldn't be going home after all, things turned ugly. On the morning of August 14th, all but two of the regiment's ten companies refused orders to strike their tents in preparation for a march to another camp. As soon as McClellan got wind of the trouble, he sent Porter and a heavily armed force of regulars to surround the 79th's camp. On a hill overlooking the camp, regular army artillerymen loaded their pieces with canister. That threat was enough to take the air out of the mutineers, and the Highlanders' revolt came to an end. Thirty-five of the ringleaders were arrested, placed in irons, and hauled away. But McClellan decided to make an example of the New Yorkers, and to that end, he ordered the Provo Marshal to strip the 79th of their regimental colors. An officer of the Provo Guard reported that when the flags were taken away from the men, a low, despairing moan came from the crestfallen Highlanders. But in making an example of the 79th, McClellan also primed them for rehabilitation, since he promised that the colors would be restored to the regiment when the men gave evidence that they had learned to behave like soldiers. True to his word, McClellan personally returned the flags to the Highlanders about a month later. One of the New Yorkers wrote that, quote, We cheered him heartily, feeling that little Mac was, after all, our friend. End quote. McClellan wrote to his wife, saying that he, quote, wanted to see as much as I can every day, and more than that, to let the men see me and gain confidence in me, end quote. As George McClellan spent long days galloping about on Dan Webster, circulating among the camps of the army, he came to be a constant presence in the lives of the soldiers, and a bond began to develop between the men in the ranks and Little Mac, or R. George, as they took to calling him. They would raise a cheer when they saw him coming, riding the big horse, and McClellan's acknowledgment of their cheers soon became his trademark. He would snatch off his cap, raise it high above his head, and give it a Johnny twirl. The rank-and-file soldiers loved it. Often he would stop to chat with a squad or company, perhaps lighting his cigar from a soldier's pipe while promising the men that he'd share the dangers of the battlefield with them. On August 20th, McClellan officially designated the units of the Union's made field army around Washington 
as the Army of the Potomac, and as he organized, trained, disciplined, and equipped his army, as it swelled in numbers through the summer and fall of 1861, the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac came to adore their commanding general. A lieutenant wrote to his parents, saying, quote, You can hardly imagine the different aspect of things pertaining to the troops and the war generally since General McClellan took command. End quote. A chaplain noted that, quote, The truth is, our magnificent army much needed a transcendent leader, and the crisis prompted us both to crave and expect one fit for the occasion, one whom we could afford to idolize. End quote. William Tecumseh Sherman once stated, quote, There is a soul to an army as well as to the individual man, and no general can accomplish the full work of his army unless he commands the soul of his men as well as their body and legs, end quote. During the summer and fall of 1861, to his credit, George McClellan not only forged an army for the North and gave it an identity, but he instilled in the men in the ranks a belief in themselves as serious soldiers. George Meade, a future commander of the Army of the Potomac, admitted later that after McClellan, quote, the army made no essential improvement under any of his, of his successors, end quote. And in his book, The Grand Design, Strategy in the U.S. Civil War, Donald Stoker expands upon that same thought, writing, quote, For all his faults that manifested later, McClellan forged the core of, and then built, one of the finest armies the United States has ever fielded. In the end, however, he proved unable or unwilling to employ it properly. Others used his magnificent army to win the war. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When we talked about McClellan before, back in episodes 43 and 44, we jokingly said that he thought he was God's gift to the Union, 
But actually, we were only half joking, because George McClellan really did believe that God had called him to save the country. After his arrival in Washington, he wrote to Ellen, saying, God has placed a great work in my hands. I was called to it. My previous life seems to have been unwittingly directed to this great end. In his book, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, James McPherson writes, quote, In any case, McClellan soon became convinced that God had not only called him to his great work, God had also placed obstacles in his path. The first of them was Winfield Scott, whose age, obesity, and infirmities limited his workday to a few hours, while the energetic and charismatic young Napoleon put in 16-hour days, organizing and drilling his new army. McClellan bypassed Scott frequently, communicating directly with the president and members of the cabinet. Serious tensions soon developed between the old and new military titans. End quote. Early in August, McClellan bypassed Winfield Scott and sent a memorandum directly to the president in which he claimed that the nearby Confederate army had 100,000 men and was being reinforced, and that Washington was in imminent danger of being attacked by this huge host. Actually, at that time, the Confederate army in northern Virginia was only about 40,000 strong. We'll talk more later on about McClellan's troubling tendency to inflate enemy strength and misconstrue Confederate intentions. Winfield Scott not only regarded McClellan's memo to the president as an insult to his own authority, but the old general scoffed at the young Napoleon's estimate of enemy numbers and his fears of an impending attack. An angry Scott apparently called McClellan into his office and gave him an earful, but then the old general-in-chief offered his resignation to the president. This quarrel between his two top military men upset Lincoln, and he managed to smooth things over and convince Scott to stay on. McClellan agreed to withdraw the offending memo, and to the president he offered his, quote, most profound assurances of respect for General Scott and yourself, end quote. But at the same time, McClellan was convinced he was right, and he was saying privately that he now believed the Confederate army to his front numbered 150,000 men. And he wrote to Allen, asking how people think, quote, that I can save this country when stopped by General Scott. I do not know whether he is a dotard or a traitor. I can't tell which. He cannot or will not comprehend the condition in which we are placed, and is entirely unequal to the emergency. If he cannot be taken out of my path, I will not retain my position, but will resign and let the administration take care of itself. That confounded old general always comes in the way. He is a perfect imbecile. He understands nothing, appreciates nothing, and is ever in my way. End quote. A week later, he wrote her, quote, General Scott is the most dangerous antagonist I have. Either he or I must leave. Our ideas are so widely different that it is impossible for us to work together much longer. End quote. And a day later, his frustration expanded to include the president as well. He wrote, quote, I am here in a terrible place. The enemy have three or four times my force. The president is an idiot. The old general in his dotage. They cannot or will not see the true state of affairs. End quote. We'll talk more later on about McClellan's relationship with Lincoln. 
and longtime listeners will remember that the two men knew each other before the war, back in Illinois. But anyway, for right now, it's enough to see that McClellan, at some point, perhaps even before he came to Washington, McClellan had obviously decided that since he was the one man who could save the country, well then, by rights, he ought to have old Winfield Scott's job as general-in-chief. As we'll see, McClellan's maneuverings against Scott will pay off in the aftermath of the federal defeat at Ball's Bluff, when the president will accept Winfield Scott's offer of retirement, and on November 1st, Lincoln will designate George McClellan as general-in-chief of all the Union's armies. But the president will be worried about whether McClellan can shoulder the new load while retaining personal command of the Army of the Potomac. McClellan, however, will answer Lincoln's doubts by assuring the president, quote, I can do it all, end quote. But before that time, before McClellan got the job he coveted, he seemed to spend more time and energy scheming and strategizing against Winfield Scott than he did against the enemy. Throughout the summer and fall of 1861, the Army of the Potomac continued to train, and this training mostly consisted of frequent, repetitive drilling. In July, immediately upon taking command of the Army, just defeated at Manassas, George McClellan had issued a proclamation to the dispirited Federal troops, urging them, quote, Let an honest pride be felt in possessing that high virtue of a soldier, obedience, end quote. But neither obedience nor military discipline was commonly cherished by the volunteer citizen soldiers from all across the North who filled the army camps around Washington. Many of them found such roles and attitudes to be undemocratic. But the veterans who had been whipped at Manassas by the Confederates had started to realize there was perhaps some value in the obedience the army was trying to instill in them through discipline. You see, according to the tactics of the time, the goal of discipline and training and obedience to orders was to allow a formation of men to maneuver into position on a battlefield and deliver maximum firepower upon the enemy. To be able to do that, a soldier had to follow orders so automatically that even amidst the smoke and noise and chaos of the battlefield, he would still respond to commands and act as part of that cohesive formation of men. One veteran of many battles wrote that, quote, It takes a raw recruit some time to learn that he is not to think or suggest, but obey. Some never do learn. I acquired it at last, in humility and mud. End quote. But learning that last lesson through cruel experience was still far off for most of the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac during the summer and fall of 1861. During those days, they were still learning to be soldiers and learning what it meant to be an army. And to help them learn those things, McClellan not only had them drill for hours on end, day after day, but he also allowed the men to show off their newly acquired skill at marching and maneuvering by holding grand reviews throughout the early autumn. Little Mac himself had a love of ceremony, and he passed on this appreciation for martial pomp to the men of his army by holding full-dress reviews on the parade ground. At first, these ceremonies consisted of only a brigade, a few thousand men marching about. 
but these were later eclipsed by larger divisional reviews held before a host of distinguished guests. Politicians came out to watch the troops from their home states. Cabinet members attended the festivities. Society ladies with hoop skirts and parasols fluttered about. Sometimes even President Lincoln would show up, but the center of attention was always McClellan. When the music of the regimental bands on the parade ground would stop, Little Mac would come galloping down the massed ranks on his great horse, and the men would cheer him, and as he swept by them, he would acknowledge their enthusiasm with that informal salute that they loved. He would snatch off his hat, and with a bow and a smile, give it that jaunty twirl. Such grand military spectacles elevated the morale of the soldiers and the civilians, but as the weeks and then the months went by, And, except for some shots between pickets and some small skirmishes, there was no action against the enemy, some in Washington and throughout the North began to wonder if the young Napoleon ever intended to do anything with the Army of the Potomac except hold impressive reviews on the parade ground. By early fall, however, although he now considered Washington safe, McClellan still imagined that a vast host of Confederates lay before him in northern Virginia and Little Mac would not move against that formidable enemy force except after careful planning and extensive preparation so that the resulting campaign would be on his terms and on ground of his choosing. But in fact, Joe Johnston, commanding the Confederate troops in northern Virginia opposite the Army of the Potomac, eventually concluded the forward positions of his outnumbered army were vulnerable to McClellan's steadily growing force, and so Johnston began pulling back. On September 27th, he evacuated Munson's Hill, his outpost nearest Washington, and fell back to Fairfax Courthouse. Then on October 17th, Johnston withdrew from Fairfax Courthouse and began consolidating his 41,000 men around Centerville and Manassas Junction and the Old Bull Run Battlefield. These enemy withdrawals pleased McClellan, Since at no cost, they allowed him to appear to be doing something, and they let his army deepen its foothold on the Confederate side of the Potomac. But then Little Mac noticed an outlying position up the river that the Confederates had not yet abandoned. This was at Leesburg, Virginia, 35 or so miles northwest of Washington. The enemy had occupied the place early in August, and it now represented the extreme left flank of their line in northern Virginia. McClellan thought that perhaps a show of force by elements of the Army of the Potomac might be enough to, quote, shake the enemy out of Leesburg, end quote. But that notion would come back to haunt McClellan, since it set in motion a train of events that ultimately led to a humiliating federal defeat at a place called Ball's Bluff. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is George B. McClellan, The Young Napoleon, by Stephen Sears. After the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant admitted that, quote, McClellan is to me one of the great mysteries of the war, end quote. Stephen Sears' biography of McClellan is a good starting point for anyone wanting to understand what Grant meant. And it's a good place to start to try to unravel that mystery that was George Britton McClellan. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. 
At the end of the last episode, we said we would cover the Battle of Ball's Bluff this week, but once we got started on McClellan, we decided to just devote this episode to him, so we hope y'all don't mind that. But we promise that next week we'll get to Ball's Bluff. Yep. But for now, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We do hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.